So we began last Sunday walking around in the rubble of our lives and taking time to talk about what has been lost and what is broken. And we, and we take that um, exercise seriously because we believe that unless we identify what is lost and what is broken and begin the process of grieving it specifically, we never work our way through it. And that's why we have a grief process to begin with. We don't grieve so we can just live forever in the loss. We grieve so that in time, by the grace of God, we can work our way through the loss to some type of new normal life after that uh, that is productive and fulfills our calling in Christ. And so it's important to take the time to, to identify what's been lost, to grieve those losses, to take them seriously and work through them. But it's also important to do that work to get through them. One of the ways the Bible speaks to us is, uh, is through narrative. We, we hear the stories of Israel, of the early church, and, and in hearing those stories, we have the ability, when we face trials of many types in our lives, to say, oh, this time is sort of like that time. And so the, the lessons of the stories of the Bibles and the teaching of the Christ become applicable to our current lives. That's how the Bible speaks to us often in, in ways of saying, you know, take in these holy words so that they can inform your life. And so it's, it's useful for us today in the kind of day that we're living in the brokenness and the rubble, the ruins that characterize our lives to look back to Scripture and find places where we say, well, yeah, this is sort of like that. And that's why we're in Isaiah to begin with. We're, we're looking at that time when uh, the kingdom of Israel is in ruins. You remember the history briefly? 786, Assyria conquers the northern kingdom. About 200 years later, Babylon and Nebuchadnezzar conquered the southern kingdom. Israel is exiled. The nation is destroyed. The city of Jerusalem and the temple are in rubble. And in 539, Cyrus the Great issues an edict allowing Babylonian Jews to return to their homeland to rebuild the temple. And they get back there and they, they stroll through the rubble. And they're kicking through the ruins of their temple trying to figure out What's salvageable? What's useful? Where do we go from here? And this morning, I'm really interested in a little piece of that story. So it's 539, when 539 BC, when Cyrus allows Jews to return. They get back there and they start the work. They start working on it. They manage to get as far as laying the foundation of the temple, and then the work just stalls there. They, they can't make any more progress. They don't have any more traction. They're, they're beset by adversaries. There's ridicule from the local population that is there. There's a lack of resources. There's fear on the, on the, on the part of the people. And, and there's 20 years that passes before King Darius issues a second degree to allow more folks to come back and to underwrite the costs of rebuilding the temple till the temple actually gets built. And I'm, I'm curious about that period of about 20 years. What's going, I mean, 20 years 
in terms of the expanse of the Bible, is like a drop of water in a bucket, right? But in our lives, 20 years is a significant chunk of time. It, it is in mine anyway. And I think about treading water for 20 years. Why, why did that have to happen? Why so much lost time? I mean, God was available to them. Why couldn't they move forward? Why couldn't they get the job done that they were assigned? And, and Scripture in Isaiah seems pretty clear. They're, they're distracted. They're not really trusting God. They're seeing what they can do, and, and there's a lot of anxiety. And, and what happens is this. When you get to chapter 58 in Isaiah, you start to hear the accusations of the people against God. And then in 58 and 59, God answers them. So in their distraction, in their fear, these Israelites are not getting what they want. And so they start to complain. Let, let me just read some of these verses. I'm going to begin just with their complaints in Isaiah 58. This is starting in Isaiah 58. This is Israel. You can sort of picture them shaking their fist at God and shouting. 58 verse 3. Why do we fast, but you do not see? Why humble ourselves, but you do not notice? That's significant indictment against God. These are folks who are fearful, and their fear degenerates into complaint and grumbling and accusations against God. But God answers them through the prophet, continuing at the same place. Look, you serve your own interests on your fast day and oppress all your workers. He's essentially saying, you go into a fast, but you don't permit any of your employees to go to a fast. You make them work and keep making a profit for you while you fast. Look, you fast only to quarrel and to fight and to strike with a wicked fist. You, you fast so that you can gain strength and win over your enemies. You still are going to be cantankerous and you're miserable people. Is such the fast that I choose a day to humble oneself? Is it to bow down the head like a bulrush and to lie in sackcloth and ashes? Will you call this a fast, a day acceptable to the Lord? He's saying, it's, is all that I want from you really just you go through the pious actions of worship and devotion? Is that all you think it takes? Verse 6, is not this the fast that I choose? To loose the bonds of injustice, to undo the thongs of the yoke, to let the oppressed go free and to break every yoke. Is it not to share your bread with the hungry and bring the homeless poor into your house when you see the naked to cover them and not to hide yourself from your own kin? Then your light shall break forth like the dawn. It's clear from this passage that in God's eyes, there's two types of activity that are required of us and that they complement one another. There is this whole range of devotion to God. And, you know, we, we sometimes quote that, that verse from 2 Chronicles, if you will humble yourselves, then I will heal your land. 
Well, it's clear from this passage that humbling ourselves isn't enough. It's not just humbling. And we're not saying that humbling isn't required. And we're not saying that worship isn't required. And we're not saying that devotion isn't required. We're saying those pious external acts of worship are not enough. Because there is devotion to God and worship of God. But then there is also the following through of that in acts of compassion and justice and kindness. God speaks further in Isaiah 59. Listen to these words. See, the Lord's hand is not too short to save, nor his ear too dull to hear. 59.2. Rather, your iniquities have been barriers between you and your God, and your sins have hidden his face from you so that he does not hear. There's something about the behavior of Israel that keeps them from appropriating the grace and provision of God in these days. And now they're stuck in this 20-year treading of water time, this accomplishing nothing, not actually doing the thing God sent them back to Jerusalem to do because they are at odds with God and not appropriating the grace of God. I mean, it's clear that the actions of Israel speak louder than their words in worship. And that's offensive to God. And the tragedy of this period of time is clear from Isaiah 65. This is what God says to them. I was ready to be sought out by those who did not ask to be found by those who did not seek me. I said, here I am, here I am, to a nation that did not call on my name. I held out my hands all day long to a rebellious people who walk in a way that is not good, following their own devices. God, God is available. He's anxious to hear us call. He's looking for our devotion and our action, the things that proclaim Jesus really is Lord in our lives. And so we, we are here in this similar place today, standing in the, the rubble of our old way of life in many ways. And we hear the promises of God to us. And I guess the question I want to ask you this morning is this. Are we going to be content with just laying the foundation of the temple? Or are we going to persevere by the integrity of our response to God to seeing the whole kingdom rebuilt and the kingdom of God advance? Are we going to be stuck treading water like Israel was? Distracted by everything that is surrounding us? Or will we call out to the one who's just waiting for our words? The one whose arms are held out to us? I think crises have the effect of making us all much more self-centered. I mean, when we're, when we're feeling pain, when we're dealing with loss of our standard way of doing life, we we worry about things. I mean, that's sort of our construction. You know, we, um, 
We worry about our paycheck. We worry about our homes. We worry about our kids. We have a whole range of things that we worry about. And, and I think we humans tend to naturally default to this idea of, well, in order to get what I want, I better do the right things for God so I can get what I want. It's sort of a, you know, a vending machine approach to God. And we, we often go there. And part of it is just saying, if things aren't going well, am I doing something wrong? I want to improve my behavior or my activity. And there's, there's something of that woven into all of this. But the trouble arises when we begin to pray more or fast more or, or add devotion to our lives in ways that we think are going to get us what we want rather than because they are deserved by our creator. And when we don't get what we want, we start to complain. We get to this place where Israel is. You know, how comes I'm praying here, Lord, and you're not answering my prayers? Why aren't you giving me what I want when I want it? And we become demanding three-year-olds, shaking our fists in God's face, saying, I want what I want, and I want it now. And crises have a way of doing that to us if we're not careful, putting us in the place of demanding toddlers, thinking that we know better than God or that we have the way mapped out for us. And, and, and when we think that way, these words of Isaiah 59 should come back to us. My arm is not too short to save. My ears are not too dull to hear. And then I should ask myself if the next words that were true of Israel are true of me, your iniquities are a barrier they keep you from seeing my face and hearing my voice. What are iniquities? Well, iniquities are, are the things that we do that we shouldn't. They are our sins. And some of those sins are because we did the wrong things. And other of those sins are things we did not do, the right things. And we've got to ask ourselves before God, uh, are our iniquities keeping us from being the people he called us to be? Are our worries about our present time moving us in a directed of such profound self-centeredness that we can't observe the royal law of love, the commands of Jesus? It happens. I mean, you probably saw pictures of people driving out of grocery stores with 375 rolls of toilet paper. I mean, that's, that's hoarding to make sure I have what I need at the expense of everybody else around me. When I'm worried about my own family, do I still have the bandwidth to help feed the hungry or care for the homeless or deal compassionately with the poor? I mean, it's a, little, it's a little more comfortable on a day like today to preach this message surrounded by almost 180 bags of food uh, in spite of the fact that they have number 12 on them. And I think that's, that, that feels a little better, but this can't be the expression of our compassion. And if we're honest, it really isn't the expression of our compassion. It's the expression of the families from our school, right? Not our church 
did this. I mean, it's not that our church isn't involved in that sort of thing. I mean, we did the Christmas baskets, the Thanksgiving baskets. We care about those things, but are those a part of the expression of my life personally, of the life of my family? How are we doing that as a congregation? That matters because being True children of God requires the marriage of both worship and devotion and compassion, which demonstrates that we believe that Jesus really is Lord when we say it. These two things must come together. It is both and. Dallas Willard wrote a book called The Celebration of the Disciplines. And in that book, he chronicles a journey that we've taken in American Christian culture talks about the days back in the 50s and 60s where denominational differences really mattered, where people really cared a great deal about being loyal to their denomination and what their denomination taught. And, and because of that, people rarely had friends or close friends in another denomination. You didn't, you didn't really marry outside your denomination. And, and that, was, that was just normal in the 50s and 60s. You just stayed in your lane for the most part. And over time, those denominational differences appropriately became less and less important to people. They began to realize we should celebrate more of what we have in common than what our differences are. And, and those denominational differences have become less and less important. And while that's good at some measure, the, the danger is that we began to think that what our church is taught really didn't matter all that much anymore. That it was, well, you can, you can take or leave some of that stuff. Some of that's extraneous. It doesn't really matter. And we become, become casual about the gospel. Um, he goes on to say that we get to the place where we become so casual about the teachings of Scripture that we've developed a new popular Christian theology which essentially says, I'm not perfect, I'm just forgiven. And you've seen that bumper sticker. And while on the surface that that's true, that theology is a huge tragedy for us because that is essentially making our headline theology an excuse for our sinfulness. When what the real gospel is telling us is the Holy Spirit is given to us for our transformation that we're supposed to become new people in Christ and that it matters that we become new people in Christ and that our performance in the compassionate world is the reflection of our devotion to God in the religious life and that these two things must come together. It is not, I'm not perfect, I'm forgiven. It is, have the same attitude in you that Christ had who emptied himself, taking on the form of a servant. This is the transforming work of God and of grace in our lives, and it must be who we are. If we will not train in the disciplines that allow us to be that kind of a person, we will never stand strong when we face real crisis and real trial. We've got to take this training stuff seriously so that we can stand in this kind of day and get past just laying the foundation of the temple. If we're going to recover from this, it's going to require some fortitude, some training, some discipline to get us to where we need to be. Some years ago, naively, back when I was first in college, 
I was home. You know, college gets out before high school gets out. So I'm home with my family. My younger brother's still in high school. Uh, he runs on the cross country team. My father, as you probably know, lifelong runner, marathoner, triathlete, all that stuff. So I get home early from the end of the semester. I'm home, I'm with the two of them. They're gonna go Saturday out to a cross country race that my brother has. And I think, you know, I'll, I'll run with them. If my, if my younger brother can do it, I can do it, right? And so I just sign up for the three mile race and I run with them. How much training? Nada, okay, no training, zero. And so, and so I, just, I just run and I think, naively in my head, you know, I can do this. Like, I don't realize how much of an idiot I am. And I run, and I managed to finish, but I did a whole lot of walking. And there wasn't anybody behind me when I finished. And I couldn't walk regularly for days after that event because I had not trained for the event. I was not prepared for it. And when it came, it just knocked me over. Why do we expect to be able to stand for Christ victoriously in a crisis if we won't do the training to build up our strength? If we won't have the routines that regularly call out to the God whose hands are continually reaching out to us? If it's all so casual, well, yeah, we'll just do it when it's convenient. We'll just, you know, like Dallas Willard says, he says, you know, it used to be normal church attendance was three times a week. Now the faithful are here two and a half times a month. Is two and a half times a month of anything going to develop any training in you? Is I try to get to the Bible once a week at home. Is that going to develop any fortitude or strength in you? I can just hear God saying, you know, I was here waiting to be found by people who weren't looking for me. If we're really going to proclaim Jesus as our Lord, then he is worthy of our full devotion. And that continual devotion and training in the things of God must issue forth in full obedience in our compassionate works and our caring for our neighbor. I guess that's why the words of six, Isaiah 65 continue to haunt me. I was ready to be sought out by those who did not ask. I was ready to be found by those who were not looking for me. All day long, I held out my arms to them. They did not come calling. Will we? Will we call? Will we take his invitation seriously? I mean, Isaiah is full of the promises of God to be with his people when they come out of exile, to rebuild the nation, that salvation is a certainty for them. And still they waver. Many don't even come back. Still, they're not willing to trust. Still, they're so self-absorbed that they can't see their way clear to give a spare thought for anyone else. Sure, they're willing to go to church. They're willing to fast. 
willing to put on some sackcloth and ashes every now and again to try to get what they want from God. He's not buying it. He's not deceived. He knows our hearts. So will we call? Will we ask? If we're going to leave the ruins and brokenness of our lives behind us, if we're going to rebuild, we must first identify what's been lost and what's broken and grieve those things. Take an accounting. See what needs to be held on to, what needs to be jettisoned, what is required to move forward. And then we must reach out to the God who stands anxious to hear us call. In the days ahead, we have to talk about what it means to call out to him so that we don't end up treading water, wasting our time, spinning our wheels like Fred Flintstone, busy, 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 and going nowhere. Heavenly Father, we place ourselves in your hands today. We ask that you help us grieve what has been lost, to recognize what must be saved and salvaged and what must be cast aside. Help us to discern, Lord, what, what habits we've started during these days of isolation that must be cast away and what it means to both worship you and obey you in the days that are ahead. We are so grateful for the promise of your word that those who seek you diligently always find you. And so we ask this day, Lord, you'd help us. We declare our dependence on you. Save us, O Lord. The water has come up, up to our necks. And we rely on your rescue and your help. And now by his grace, may the Holy Spirit bring you clarity. May he give you the mind of Christ so that in every aspect of your life, you may worship and obey the only one who's worthy of worship and obedience, our God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen.